from the spooky south coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz broadcasting live on YouTube right now and then later on on WBSM. The Red Sox are on, which means we are broadcasting via the spooky stream and I know, I know it's 10.30 and we said this was going to allow us to start starting on time, but I was late tonight, so I screwed things up. Uh, and also we're getting used to this technology. So this is a, a whole new avenue for us, a whole new situation with uh, trying to stream live during the Red Sox so that we don't miss any spooky time with you, the audience. And thank you to everybody who is joining us on our YouTube channel and also on Facebook Live. If you're watching on Facebook Live, we love that. We appreciate that. But I just got to tell you, Facebook Live is like we're, th- we're throwing you a bone there. Right? It's a little bit of a tease so that you will come on over to the YouTube channel where we have multiple camera angles and all kinds of stuff going on on the screen. And uh, this is this is your chance to interact with us as well during the show because we have a chat room up there as well. And we can still take your phone calls, even though we're not on the air, at 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420, if you want to talk to us toll-free. And uh, you can still tweet us at SpookySC. You can email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com. So you can still get in touch with us any way that you want to do so. And we will be talking tonight with our guest, as I mentioned in the cold open. George Case uh, will be joining us in just a few moments. Matt's going to go get him on the line. This is going to be a discussion that I think anybody who was alive in the 60s and 70s will remember this. And anybody like myself who has you know, always had an interest in this uh, will... We're just, it's going to be a creepy night because we're going to talk about how the devil worked his way into the average American home uh, for well over a decade. And some of this stuff, I mean, we'll get into it with George tonight, but some of this stuff uh, still is out there today. And some of these stories are still out there. So uh, we should have a fun time discussing all of that and, uh, again, also sharing it with you. We will go live at some point on WBSM, uh, but don't worry. We're not going to restart the show or anything. We will join programming already in progress. So this is the way to check out the show when there's a Red Sox game going on. Go to the YouTube channel. We'll start things on time, more or less. And then we will absolutely uh, be able to provide you with full spooky content, even though the games kick us off. And, and maybe a little bit later on we can talk a little bit about uh, our event last weekend at the Faring Tavern in Wareham. Uh, but right now let's welcome in our... A spooky South Coast content director, Chris Balzano. We have him on the Skype line, so let's bring him on off. first. And, and maybe oh, 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 Chris, you're you're giving us some. Oh, that's me. Hold on. Dun, 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 dun. Learning on the fly. All right, Chris, there are you with us? Yeah, don't blame me. I'm no, fine. that was totally me. I realized afterwards that that was totally me. I had the volume up on the YouTube stream that I'm monitoring. Okay, my, all right. I'm still getting really strong echo. Well, that might keep happening a little bit because uh, of the way that we're doing this. So if it gets to be too much, let me know, and you can just call back on one of the call-in lines, and we'll just put you on hold. Okay, I mean, no we'll, problem. We'll put I guess you on the other people have to suffer from hearing me, I'm going to have to do it myself. There you go. And we also have <laughs> joining us on the line tonight's guest, uh, George Case is our guest tonight. He is a writer on ideas in popular culture and an acknowledged authority on the band Led Zeppelin. He is the author of Jimmy Page, Magic Musician Man, Out of Our Heads, Rock and Roll Before the Drugs Wore Off, Calling Dr. Strangelove, and several other books. 
George has also contributed several articles to the social science journal Skeptic, and he's joining us tonight to talk about his new book, Here's to My Sweet Satan, How the Occult Haunted Music, Movies, and Pop Culture from 1966 to 1980. And good evening, George. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. And uh, this book, I can tell you, I mean, I know as a, as a writer myself, you never want to hear this when somebody says, I sat down and I read your book in one sitting. But I pretty much sat down and read your book in almost one sitting. Well, that's good to hear. Chris, can you stop rebuilding your kitchen while we're doing the show? That wasn't me, I swear. I hear I hear a lot of uh, rustling on your end. <laughs> so the... This book, I mean, as I was saying, you know, once you pick it up, you can't stop because it's so incredible the way that you have not only talked about this era of 1966 to 1980, but talked about how this subject, the idea of bringing Satan and the occult into, you know, the the, the reaches of, of American culture, this goes back centuries. Right. Right. Well, I was born in 1967, so for me, I kind of lived through this as a kid, and it did seem to me that when I was stepping back from it, there really was a period where, although a lot of these ideas, as you say, they've been around for for centuries or or millennia, they had suddenly risen in prominence in popular culture from the mid-60s onward and all through the 70s, so they suddenly had this sort of revival that started happening, and in a sense, we, we're still living with the, the consequences of that today, but it really did seem to take off again in the 60s and 70s, just when people were thinking that we were sort of moving away into an era of, of rationalism and science and technology. Suddenly all these old superstitions and, and biblical ideas became revived. So that was really interesting to me, and it was certainly something I remembered living through as a kid. Well, and you point out that, you know, the 1966 genesis of, of this era came from that Time magazine article, which, uh, you know, came out in, what, April of 1966. So you got to think they were trying to tell the writer, you know, listen, uh, you can't go past deadline because there's no way we're publishing this in June of 1966. We can't put this article out with a 666 <laughs> publishing date on it. Well, I wondered if they were really thinking of that at that time because the whole revelation and 666 and the omen, I mean, that was something a lot of people didn't even know about really except True, yeah. for like serious observant Christians. So I think by June of 1966, it probably hadn't crossed people's minds, but by June of 1976 when the omen came out, then I think a lot of people really got into the idea of 666. And even after... Uh, 1970, when Hal Lindsey, the evangelist, put out his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, he was the one who sort of revived that idea of Armageddon and the Apocalypse and the Antichrist. That came to the fore again and again using the number 666. So, but April 1966, yes, God is Dead on the cover of Time magazine. That was kind of, for me, it seemed like a good, uh, memorable launching point for that whole era. And if I remember reading right in the book, it was the first time they ever didn't feature a person on the cover of Time magazine. Yeah, that's right. It was. It was usually they had like someone's face or a picture of an event or something, but this was the first time they just used words. So you can imagine how that would look on the newsstand in 1966. It's just red letters against the black background. Is God dead? Like that's pretty provocative at the time. So I think whether you were for her or against it, whether you thought yes or thought no, it was going to uh, uh, get a lot of people talking, and uh, the reverberations lasted for a long time after that. 
Well, I mean, we're talking about an era where, you know, the, the counterculture was starting to, to become more popular, where, you know, you have John Lennon proclaiming the Beatles to be more popular than Jesus. People are disillusioned from the, you know, the, the nuclear family that was heavily based in faith of the 1950s. Uh, so, you know, you can kind of understand why, why Time Magazine was looking at this, though. We were in a time when people were questioning their own faith. Yeah, I think so. Well, faith was just one of many things that were being questioned. There was the authority of the state, of parents, of the military, of the media. There were so many things that were being uh, criticized and protested against in that era that I think religion or conventional religion was just going to be another one of those. And the forms of those protests, it wasn't so much marching in the streets, it was in the movies and music and, and trips to the occult shop and everything. So it was, it was just another, another aspect of society, another conventional mainstream aspect of society that people were suddenly starting to reject or question and introduce all these alternative ideas to. And the occult was the manifestation of that. There, and, and I'm sure when you're, you know, living like a lot of, especially young people were back in the 1960s and, and or, you know, some kind of rail against all the conformity that had came before, you know, some of this darker stuff was probably at least intriguing, if not alluring. Oh, yeah, I think so. And especially when you combine it with the drug culture, which was happening, too, where people were already sort of predisposed to accept hallucinatory views of what reality is, and people were starting to think there's some whole other deeper element behind the, the ordinary facade of regular life, um, I think the occult was going to emerge from that and that people were just thinking there's something wrong with what we've been fed or there's something wrong with the the conventional wisdom that we're always hearing about. So if if God is dead, well, then maybe it's his old rivals that we should start taking a look at, and that includes Satan and all the other uh, the expressions of the unknown or the paranormal that came out in that time, all those, all the things that we had accepted as reality and straightforward and fact, well, they came under under a lot of doubt at the time. What I found interesting too, and the, and the book does a great job of uh, of illustrating this, is that you know, kind of the the marketer in me would look at something like that and say, okay, this Time magazine, which at the time was you know one of the biggest periodicals, everybody read Time magazine, so I would have looked at that and said, okay, well they're asking, you know, is God dead, and and they're looking at the possibility that you know there could be this rise of the other side of that argument, so I would incorporate that into. My media, I would incorporate that into what I was doing into my gimmick, but it doesn't seem like that was the case. People weren't using this as a gimmick. It seemed like the rise of the occult was a, a very organic thing from what was happening in that era. Well, that's yeah, that's an interesting point because that's something I try to address through the book. Like a lot of it was, there's no doubt that a lot of it was just commercialized. There was people trying to cash in on what looked like a trend. That always happens. Whatever the trend is, there's always going to be book publishers and movie producers and record producers who try to get something that reflects that and simply because they know it sells. If everyone's buying one thing, well, let's make something like it, and and they'll buy that too. So there was certainly an element of just jumping on a bandwagon there. But on the other hand, there was something, as you say, that was organic, that was really coming from a real grassroots place where people really were, particularly young people, really were starting to to question the traditional, the mainstream views of faith and, and what reality was, what the social order should be. So it was partly driven by Hollywood and Madison Avenue, but it did kind of take root in Main Street and in, you know, any town USA. There was people taking it 
farther than the the promoters and the producers intended it to go. And I think there's also something to be said for um, <clears throat> the length of time for which it existed. I mean, trends are things that tend to burn themselves out, but um, the way that you lay it out in the book, you really see how one media starts really having a heavy impact on the other for, I mean, at least what's covered in your book, 14 years. Right, yeah. I mean, when you look at the whole time that all these, these blockbuster movies and best-selling books and hit records were coming out, it really did last quite a long time that the occult or the paranormal or the unexplained or Satanism or whatever, it, it did... It was kind of a fixture of popular culture for about that length of time. Now, it, it didn't it didn't stop cold in 1980, that's for sure. But that's after that point, you did start to get a kind of backlash against it. And then there was these two different sides of the culture war that were sort of going at it. You had the conservative evangelical Christianity who was suddenly up and reacting against it. And then you still had this sort of New Age movement that was still promoting all these uh, esoteric ideas, and there were still things like heavy metal and slasher movies and stuff. So it never went away. But after 1980, there was kind of two warring camps surrounding it. But yeah, it did last uh, a good long time. It wasn't just a brief fad. It was a good decade's worth, or almost decade and a half, of being a real fixture of entertainment. And not only a decade and a half, but a decade and a half that from the outside really marked very different beliefs. I mean, the the, the uh, nuclear family that Tim was talking about in 1966 is dramatically different from the the, the early 80s family that, that was feeling kind of the, the backlash and the wave of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many social changes happened. And I don't want to say that the occult was the only thing happening in that era. Obviously, there was uh, feminism, the drug culture, uh, the civil rights movement, there was a Vietnam, Watergate, there was a lot that was happening that was changing people's minds. Uh, the the death of the nuclear family, rising divorce rates, rising crime rates, there was a lot happening in Western society at the time, for sure. The occult was just one one part of that, but it did seem to reinforce all the other changes that were going on. So you can imagine being a young person or even a middle-aged person living in about 1973 and, and looking at yeah, the biggest, the hit movie of the year is The Exorcist, and the hit album of the year is, is Black Sabbath. Like, there was a lot changing, and in a lot of ways, it would have been pretty disturbing to be watching what was going on around you at the time. I mean, looking specifically at, say, for example, the Catholic Church. I mean, how did they try to combat this to have the occult coming out and being so popular with the horror movies and the albums? And you know, I, I guess it could have been twofold. They either could have you know, tried to launch a campaign to fight against it and discredit it, or they could have kind of just sat back and waited and said, you know, eventually, if this pervades pop culture enough, people are going to come running to us for for uh, solace and, and for consolation away from it. Yeah, I think that was part of the the complication of this, and certainly that was true with uh, The Exorcist, is that a lot of these movies and books that were invoking the idea of Satan and the devil or witchcraft, really they all seem to bear out basically a Christian or Catholic philosophy that there is a heaven and a hell and that the devil is real, which means God is real. So in a sense, it was reinforcing those, those Christian beliefs. It was just coming at them from the other side. So in some ways, uh, Christians or Catholics really did kind of benefit from the occult boom since it made their 
position seem all the more uh, strong. It seemed like, and a lot of people did see these scary movies or react to some scary news story or some idea about Satan and the devil, and it made them turn to the church for for comfort or protection. And I don't think they would have done that had there not been this this fear of the devil that it was being revived so much in in those years, especially when he was made to seem so so plausible. Like if you look at Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, those stories were set in contemporary urban worlds among educated people. It wasn't back in the medieval Europe. It wasn't in Transylvania. It wasn't in a scary castle. It was in the here and now. So it made it, all that stuff seem a lot more plausible to people. And if it scared them that much that they wanted to turn to the church, well, then the church itself would become all the more relevant. And when the church does, you know, have that relevancy in, in people's lives and, and when it does, they can keep this kind of stuff in better perspective as opposed to, you know, the, the average teenager who's sitting at home, you know, running his Led Zeppelin records backwards and, and going out with his friends to see The Exorcist, you know, he might not already have that firm basis of faith and, and that firm foundation of faith that an older person might have and, and be better equipped to deal with it. So I think that made it become even more alluring to some of these teenagers of the era. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think a lot of serious theologians who were who were observing what was happening, they saw it as just a pop culture thing. They didn't really think we should be taking the devil so seriously. They didn't really think that demonic possession was uh, an epidemic. So, I, and even Catholic clergy who had people approach them saying they were possessed or whatever, uh, they tried to downplay it. I think there was among the mature people there was. They were trying not to to get caught up in the media themselves. But on the other hand, you did have Pope Paul in 1972 talking about the devil's power. He made an address to the Catholic faithful at that time. So I think the church was sort of ambivalent about what was happening in the entertainment industry. On the one hand, they didn't want to take it too seriously. But on the other hand, if it meant that it was bringing people to them, well, they weren't going to complain. I mean, it's, in a way, it's kind of the the great marketing tool for them because you know they they don't have to, be, you know, a lot. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you see, especially like in The Exorcist, you know, some of the the basis for the religious aspects to it are, you know, not entirely truthful and not entirely well researched. But Correct. at least it gives people an idea and gives them, uh, you know, an uh, an idea of what they can turn to. Yeah, that's right. And even uh, Anton LaVey of The Church of Satan, he called Rosemary's Baby. He said that movie was the best paid, best commercial for Satan since uh, the Spanish Inquisition. So as long as Satan was getting all this publicity, uh, it would basically drive people to his enemy, which was God. So I, And that's something uh, Ira Levin said at the end of uh, his career. He said, he almost regretted writing Rosemary's Baby because he knew it sort of helped generate indirectly the kind of religious fundamentalism that has has arisen in some parts of the United States since then because so many people wanted to believe in some form of supernatural deity that it did lay the groundwork for the rise in evangelical Christianity because people were so scared of of the bad guy in that story, which is Satan. I mean, if nineteen, if the nineteen sixty six Time magazine article was kind of the genesis point for this era of the occult, uh, what, what would you say was kind of the first major touchstone of that? Would it have been Sergeant Pepper's? 
Yeah, I start with Sergeant Pepper with Aleister Crowley on the cover. Now that happened in June 1967, so that was, and of course, it was the biggest selling album of the time. The Beatles were the biggest entertainers of the time. So even if people just got the album and listened to the music, there was enough of them, like millions and millions, who were going to look at the people on the cover and think, who's that guy up in the corner? And then someone would learn, oh, that's Aleister Crowley. Oh, what's he about? And then they would find out his history. So that was certainly started at rolling. But in 1966, he also had uh, Anton LaVey found the Church of Satan, and he got a lot of publicity for that. It was sort of a, a novelty and a, a shock value thing, but he did get a lot of attention in the American press, and he appeared on The Tonight Show in 1967. So there was a whole confluence of things that were coming out at the time. Uh, the Rolling Stones later in, I think, 67 or 68 put out their Satanic Majesty's Request. So it it really started to snowball after 1966 that everywhere you turned, records, books, they came out in 1967. Everywhere you turned, there was something satanic or paranormal or unexplained. It all really started rolling. Uh, we are just about getting ready to switch over to the regular radio broadcast as well. Uh, that'll be coming up in just a moment. But uh, we are still streaming live on YouTube with our guest, George Case, uh, the author of the new book, Here's to My Sweet Satan, How the Occult Haunted Music, Movies, and Pop Culture from 1966 to 1980. And, of course, the foreword, George, is written by Michael Shermer, uh, Skeptic. And to have somebody, uh, and obviously, you know, you've written for Skeptic and you have a relationship with the folks over there, but to have them, you know, kind of put, their stamp of approval onto your research here and onto the uh, the narrative here that you're telling it it shows that you know they they are able to look at this from a, a rational point of view and say yes this was a very strong thing at the time this isn't just you know uh, this isn't just people being afraid this isn't a, a pocket of America who was pointing to this as being the corruption of the young part of society this was an actual I don't want to say epidemic but certainly an actual influence of the time oh yeah absolutely I mean it was somewhat of a hysteria that was happening. Some people took it more seriously than others, but it was certainly a big thing, and I, w I was very pleased to have Michael Shermer write the foreword. Uh, I don't want to say that the book is all about debunking the occult. I, I wasn't really aiming for that, but I was trying to come at it from a sort of rationalist point of view, so you can get both sides of the story. You can get the original phenomenon of p demonic possession or the Sasquatch or the or the Bermuda Triangle or whatever, but you can also get the sort of backstory to it that maybe puts it in a bit more perspective. So as you're working more with these dates and with these um, these different medias which are mirroring each other, which are kind of feeding off of each other, which are promoting things, <clears throat> excuse me, and trying to maintain a certain level of neutrality, did you start to see patterns that maybe pointed at something deeper, something more paranormal? as if there was something controlling or at least um, helping these things along? Well, I think the, certainly the, the media was kind of ricocheting off each other, so that if you saw it in one medium, it would turn up in another one soon enough. So it was, just, it was all rotating among different formats, like TV. If there was a hit movie, well, there was going to be a TV version of that. If there was a hit novel they made a, a movie of it. If there was a hit record, well, the record would, there would be posters of it or whatever. Um, but I, it, So it was a largely a, a commercial thing, but not entirely, as you say. Um, I think people were curious, and certainly in the fields of the unexplained or the paranormal, there was some serious research going on into things like telepathy, psychokinesis, 
um, you know, disappearances, cryptozoology, all that stuff came out at the same time, too. So these people weren't just religious people. They were trying to appeal to some sort of scientific method. Now, in the book, I suggest that some of that science was a little bit shaky. I don't know if the evidence was there that people thought was there, but they were certainly trying to study these unexplained and maybe irrational uh, manifestations a little more closely than they've been studied before. Like, what, is there a Loch Ness monster? What is ESP? Um, what is? Why are these ships disappearing around Bermuda? Like, there were people trying to take it seriously and bringing some semblance of a, a rationalist outlook to it. Now, I don't know how well they succeeded, but it was certainly more deep than just you know, let's make a quick buck off of this. They they really wanted. To find out something that was that hadn't been explored before well uh, we are just about out of time for this hour uh, in just a few moments we'll have to take a break for the news uh, when we do so we can come back on the other side I want to get into as as a lot of this uh, moved into the 70s you know we started having all the issues with the back masking on records and and uh, <laughs> you know all those different subliminal messages that people were encountering, and and we can really get into the heart of some of that. But we did have a, a quick question in just a few moments that we have left. Uh, somebody asked a question in the chat room on our YouTube channel uh, that you know weren't these references to Satan in pop culture meant as a way to call attention to what they were doing? That you know even though Black Sabbath used occult imagery, they were all pretty much Christian guys, and it was it was kind of like. You know their genre and their 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 gimmick as a way to get out there and promote themselves. Oh yeah, and I I talk about that in the book. Like it's the same with Kiss and ACDC and a lot of those groups at the time. They knew a good thing when they had it. Um, it was a very competitive field. They were trying to succeed. They were very young, uh, and they were always pretty clear. Same with Alice Cooper. Like he knew he had something that was working and that was getting a lot of attention. There's no such thing as bad publicity. But in private, he would always say, look, look, this is an act. I know it works, but I don't take myself as seriously as the people who are all freaked out by me do. And the same with Black Sabbath and even Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin, who really did kind of take an interest in Aleister Crowley and the occult, was not trying to convert anyone. And he just knew that it was a mystique, that it worked, but he wasn't trying to, he certainly wasn't putting backwards messages on his music. I do like, though, that uh, the, the urban legends that can pop up around a lot of this stuff, and, and we can get into a lot of that coming up in the next hour, that, you know, sometimes the, and you reference it in the book, and it's one of my favorite quotes of all time from the man who shot Liberty Valance, when legend becomes fact, print the legend. Absolutely, yeah, and there was a lot of legend being printed at the time. Well, which is great for me because uh, Chris and I both, you know, we, we'd much rather kind of explore the legends than reality. Legends are so much more fun. <laughs> And we'll talk about some of that, including we'll find out what does KISS really stand for. And we'll talk about the backmasking and records. You know, was were they trying to send out these secret messages? Was Paul dead? Is it now an imposter pretending to be Sir Paul McCartney? Is it, uh, is it the one and only Billy Shears actually going out there on tour right now? It just played Fenway Park. We'll get into all that coming up in the next hour. Uh, but very quickly, George, where can everybody get the book, uh, Here's to My Sweet Satan? It's available at Barnes & Noble. It's available at uh, Amazon. You'll find it all through uh, bookstores and online. Excellent. And, and do you have a personal website at all? Uh, just my blog, which I've got up uh, on your page, uh, georgecase at wordpress.com. 
All right, and then people can go to that link directly on SpookySouthCoast.com. That's uh, correct. We are going to take a break for the news. Uh, when we come back on the other side, we'll delve even more into this topic. We'll also take your calls at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. And if you would rather communicate with us uh, via the Internet, you can do so by tweeting us at SpookySC or by using the hashtag SpookyLive on Twitter. Or you can go into the chat room on our YouTube stream. If you are new to the show, we broadcast on Saturday nights on WBSM, but we also stream live video uh, on our YouTube channel. So just look up Spooky South Coast on YouTube or go to SpookySouthCoast.com and follow the link there, and you can see our multi-camera setup with the images that we bring in. And I, th- I got a feeling that Matt Koss is going to find some pretty fun images coming up in the next hour as we talk about some of this stuff. And a whole, bo- whole lot more coming up on Spooky South Coast here on WBSM. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more. Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And if you're wondering, hey, hour two, I just heard you guys just starting. That's because we were broadcasting on our YouTube channel, which we will do during the Red Sox games so that uh, you can join in in all the spooky fun. And if you go to our YouTube channel, you will see the chat room there. And the chat room is a poppin' tonight. There's a lot of people in there. So I want to say hi to everybody that's in the chat room. Thank you all for joining us on this Saturday night. Also joining us on this Saturday night is the show's content director, Chris Balzano. Chris, you're still with us? I am still here. Excellent. It sounds like you're in the same room as us. I know. It's like uh, crystal clear. I practically can uh, reach out and touch Moniz. And... Uh, and uh, Please why you, I was going to say, why you want to do that, I don't know. But. <laughs> and uh, we are going to get right back into things with tonight's guest. He's the author of Here's to My Sweet Satan, How the Occult Haunted Music, Movies, and Pop Culture from 1966 to 1980. George Case is our guest tonight. And, uh, and Chris, I know that you had said that uh, there was something that you wanted to follow up on from what we were talking about at the end of the last hour. Yeah, I got booted off a little bit, but I kind of wanted to, you know, I think the book does a really great job. It has a chapter uh, all about the paranormal, and, and he focuses on, you focus, George, on the other uh, B-triangle uh, that's out there. Um, but I kind of just want to nail it down right now. Like, do you think there's something more nefarious behind this? I mean, is it all just commercialism and, um, and you know, things feeding off of each other? Or, you know, is there a darker drive behind this that, that's causing these things to to kind of manifest themselves and kind of pop up all at the same time and become part of our everyday life like it's no longer a situation where the occult um, is that unusual I mean it was breakfast cereal so um, whether it's some kind of conspiracy theory whether it's um, some kind of um, you know corporate or governmental um, um, 
you know, secret society type thing or whether it's actually uh, the devil himself. I mean, is there something more than just um, than just the mundane um, making these things all happen at the same time? Well, yeah, that's a big question. Um, I think a lot of it was certainly driven by uh, the entertainment industry. I think a lot of people were just jumping on a bandwagon. As I mentioned before, it succeeded in some places, so immediately you would have uh, a bunch of rip-offs and, and rehashes of the same thing. That's the way it is with any pop cultural trend. I think the ideas underlying it were were real enough. I think people were looking for uh, alternative forms of belief, uh, different ideas about how the universe worked, basically. Uh, I think people were curious about, is there anything left after nuclear power and landing on the moon and all the technology that people were living with and that was being introduced into the homes at the time. I think people wanted to know there must still be some sort of intangible, incorporeal essence out there. Uh, people were curious about different forms of religion, including Buddhism and Hinduism. So those things were real. Now, by the conclusion of the book, my position I make pretty clear. I'm a materialist. I'm a rationalist. I don't think there is a devil out there making this happen. I don't think there are secret societies or secret groups pulling strings and, and implanting this stuff in the culture for other people to absorb. I think it's just all uh, a random occurrence of, of the market and different ideas bouncing off each other. But I, I acknowledge that if people are curious about these ideas and want to explore them, I think we should all have the freedom to do that and see where they lead. But, no, I don't think there's a real devil making devil movies or making movies about Satan popular. I think it's just, for whatever reasons, for a variety of reasons, people just suddenly became a lot more receptive to, the, to these ideas during the period that I'm talking about. Although it's a lot more romantic to think they actually sold their souls to the devil. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's part, that's part of the fun, too. I mean, that makes it entertaining right. is the idea that, yeah, Jimmy Page sold his and Led Zeppelin's souls to the devil or that the Kiss comic books were printed in real Kiss blood or that Alice Cooper was having himself guillotined on stage every night. I mean, I acknowledge this is great entertainment. Uh, I like that music. I like these movies. There's some great writing. Uh, I talk about the first novels of Stephen King, which were coming out in the 70s. Now, they're pretty big novels, and I think he's an excellent writer. So, you know, all credit to the artists and the creators making this stuff who made it seem plausible, who made it seem really attractive, and who drew a huge audience with them. I mean, if you're talking about the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or Black Sabbath, those are great rock groups. Uh, you know, I have no problem with people using whatever devices or exploring whatever ideas they want, and if it sells millions of copies, good for them. I think that's great, but I think ultimately it does all stem from the ideas of regular human beings just exploring where their creativity and where their, their faith, their belief, their curiosity leads them. I don't think there's anything else out there making it happen and implanting it in the artist's minds. You know, going forward from where you stop the book, um, you have the rise of um, now debunked uh, um, uh, occult or cults that were said to be molesting children. Mm -hmm. You have school shootings which, which owe their origins to both occult beginnings and also the works of Stephen King, who you were just talking about. Right. Um, 
What kind of responsibility do you think these artists had, and, and, and has there been a backlash um, years and years after the fact for the art that they created during that time that was so occult-based? Well, I mean, you've heard uh, there have been trials about uh, backmasking. I think Ozzy Osbourne and even Judas Priest were sued for allegedly putting backmasking mm-hmm. on their records that were telling people to kill themselves or whatever. Uh, those cases did not stand up in court. They were thrown out of court. Um, right. The backmasking on Stairway to Heaven, again, uh, Led Zeppelin has always denied it. No one has ever conclusively proved that they intended to put anything there. That's all the power of suggestion. I think if people are looking for some explanation, if people want to find something sinister or dark or nefarious in other people's ordinary activities, they will find it, and the, the occult kind of prompted that. But ultimately the the people making the music and certainly the people running the daycares were innocent of any malign intent and that's where it really gets sort of tragic is that if people want to believe that uh that a rock star is putting satanic messages on their records well that's one thing but if they also want to believe that the operators of their children's daycare are forcing their kids into satanic orgies and that they have to be charged and sent to prison. Well, that's getting pretty serious when you're charging uh, innocent people with these terrible crimes. Right. So that's a pretty serious consequence of occult belief and the occult mythology that arose at that time, and that's something we're still kind of living with. I mean, I don't mention it in the book, but you look at the West Memphis Three, three kids who were innocently right. charged with some sort of horrific crime. Now, the crime did take place. There was a, a brutal murder, but the young guys who were charged with it were just people listening to Metallica and wearing black, but got accused of committing this terrible thing. So that's kind of the dark side of the occult hysteria. It's not just it's not always fun. It's not always entertainment. It, it can lead to all kinds of injustice and just completely wrong-headed beliefs. Well, we and as far as I know, no one else other than Stephen King has ever come out and apologized for that kind of thing. Well, I, I, I I'm wondering if if you know should they apologize for doing it? I think I know Stephen King has withdrawn one of his books that seemed to suggest you know going up and shooting up a school. Right, rage. Right, rage. Um, you know how far people want to take this. I know Ozzy Osbourne once said something like. These kids who who kill themselves listening to heavy metal, they're freaking out anyway. They're using the right. music as a vehicle for their freakouts. There's obviously something more disturbed, and if people are going to react this way to to every novel or movie or or record album that seems to bring out some weird thing in them, they probably have it in there to begin with, and the the entertainment is just sort of being the trigger for it. But I don't know if if it would be any more safer to to suddenly stop all this or ban it all or censor it because of its alleged danger. I think most people can appreciate all this as entertainment. They can get scared or freaked out for a while, but they're not going to go and harm anyone because of it. Well, you're supposed to take it all and put it in a big pile and, and set it on fire and have the whole community come out and, you know, shake and twitch around it. But one one of the um, which one of these mediums do you think had the biggest impact? I mean, we've talked a lot about the music. When you get into everything from the movies to the books to the to the commercial items, I mean, which one do you think had the gen- most genuine, impactful, and longest-lasting effect on on our culture? 
Well, you can put, you can see it in a number of different ways. I think if you're talking sheer dollar amount, I, the the Exorcist, which came out in late 1973, is still adjusted for inflation. It's one of the highest grossing movies of all time, and it's certainly one of the most influential. I would put that right up there. Uh, Stephen King is certainly one of the most best-selling authors of all time. He sold you know, 500 million copies of his books, so that's ahead of Agatha Christie and Louis Lemur and all those people. So. I mean, that's dollar for dollar, page for page, unit sold for unit sold. That is a, a huge impact. Um, but even something as sort of as bland or as pervasive as astrology, like that really came to the fore during the occult period. People started believing in that. It was printed in newspapers. That was, you know, that was everywhere at the time. You might not think of it as a single phenomenon or as a single product, but the fact that so many people nowadays know about I'm a Libra or I'm a Gemini or what's your sign? Like, that's a pretty influential idea just to think that your, your destiny or your, your temperament is going to be determined by the stars. So that's obviously had an influence whether or not we really take it seriously. It's something everyone does know about. So there's a number of, there's, there's all kinds of different groups or acts or, or phenomena that have had a, a huge impact and which is still lingering on today but i would probably put maybe just for my own personal bias i might name the exorcist as the big one that really is still packing a wallop well and that's one of the the things that is certainly to blame for some of the hysteria around this you know the the great marketing campaign they had around the exorcist movie i mean already the book was talked about as being you know one of the scariest books of all time but then the movie comes out and you have all these stories of people having heart attacks and miscarriages and running from the theater screaming and becoming possessed you know after they go out and see the movie that we you know we can't just accept issues within ourselves we always have to blame an outside force Right, yeah. So I, I mean, that really seemed to trigger off something that has never, we've never been the same after that movie came out. Um, and again, I mean, it was a movie. It was commercially released. It was, it was made to make money, and it did that just like the books, just like the, the record albums. And you know, I might also name Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, two hugely successful groups that were sort of linked to the occult at the time. Even if you get outside of astrology and some of the social phenomenon, maybe even things like the the whole occult murder phenomenon or the idea that uh, the occult would be uh, blamed on these different murders. That's something now we kind of take for granted that if you hear about some terrible crime, people look for these uh, mysterious or crazy motives that they might not have looked for 50 years ago just because now we sort of expect that this, there are people out there who, who worship Satan or who have some satanic delusions at the time in 1966 that was really unusual but now we almost take it for granted that there are these real or imagined occult groups out there so it's become just part of how we think how we believe what what we expect to find in our society out there what about your thoughts on ramirez i know it's a little after your date of research but on the night stalker correct yeah, yeah, I have him in there. Um, now, here was a guy who really did announce that he was for Satan. He painted pentagrams on his hands. Um, he really did do his killings in the name of Satan. He spray-painted pentagrams around his 
uh, around his crime scenes. He was a bad dude, but he also had epilepsy. He was a heavy drug user. He'd been shown uh, horrific pictures of uh, battleground scenes from, I think it was his cousin who was a Vietnam vet. So he was a guy who was obviously having some serious issues, mental issues, on his own. And I think the occult became the sort of the vehicle by which he acted them out. He was probably going to do terrible things anyways, uh, but it just here was a rationalization for him. Here was a way for him to to express himself. So, but he was definitely in, you know a serious satanic killer and self describes as such. Sorry, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say it's 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 kind of funny. It's almost as if whoever's running. Uh, the online uh, movie and television sites uh, read your book and decided to just get as many of them they could because in the most recent like post of you know what's coming to Netflix and what's coming to Hulu um, it's pretty much like the you know the the, uh, the bibliography of your book <laughs> like so yeah, many of those the, those movies are classics so I mean The Exorcist is still going to be around uh, Rosemary's Baby The Omen I mean I think they just have done a, a remake or reboot of The Exorcist, which is coming out on Fox TV. Like, there's all kinds of... This stuff is just not going away. How many Amityville horrors have there been? How many sequels to The Omen have there been? Like, it, it's become a whole industry in itself now. Uh-oh, Chris. Right. He, he said the A-word, Chris. I know. I was thinking he said the A-word. We should, should have prompted well, not to say the A-word. Yeah, but. we have problems, George, whenever we talk about <laughs> Amityville on this show with things going haywire. And, and I know as somebody you know who is very grounded in, in your research that that might be hard to accept, but it does happen. And that's the reason why, by the way, that we're not actually going to play any of these backmasking clips on the air. Okay. When we've done it in the past, it causes things to go wrong. So let's. we just decided, you know... Believe it or not, we just don't want to tempt fate, so uh, we'll keep it uh, to to a minimum. People can go out and explore this stuff. It's all on YouTube if you want to find it for yourself. Uh, but George, I want to do. I do want to point out that you mentioned in the book, as much as we're talking about all this negativity and the darker side of the occult, not everything of that era was dark. I mean, uh, astrology became a very big thing in a lot of people's lives during this era. Right, astrology, uh, tarot cards. Um, crystals, I Ching, uh, even things, if you want to stretch it a little bit, stretch the definition a little bit, people were exploring things like yoga and Tai Chi. Now, that's not quite a cult, but it was the same, part of the same trend whereby people were exploring different types of religion, religion from, from faraway lands, thinking of uh, other ways of belief, other ways in which to order the universe, even something like uh, Wicca. People got into the Wiccan movement, and that seemed to uh, sort of coincide with the feminist movement for, in a lot of ways because it celebrated the divinity of the mother goddess. So I think a lot of women really appreciated that here was a religion with a female at the head instead of a traditional male god. So that was, I don't know if you ever say it was positive, but it was, certainly wasn't dark and evil and, and violent and malicious. It was something that people could appreciate and steer towards. You know, what or we would have, oh, I'm sorry, I was going to say, or we would have even had the rebirth of Tolkien that you talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he had a sort of revival at the time. H.P. Lovecraft came around again, and he had died in 1937, but people were starting to appreciate his work again. And, yeah, Tolkien was huge in the late 60s and throughout the 70s. Um, you know, these are all good things. Like, there's, there's nothing satanic about them. And even the explorations of uh, chariots of the gods, as much as that turned out to be pretty flimsy, there's not a lot of evidence there to say that extraterrestrials uh, influenced 
cultures from antiquity, at least it introduced people to the idea that there was antiquity, and let's look at the Nazca lines or the pyramids in Mexico and Egypt, and let's think about uh, how they got there. So, you know, it wasn't all about Satan and the devil and, and religion and possessed kids. There were some other intriguing ideas that were being tossed around and that as people interpreted as a, a force for good, really. Well, uh, of course, Tolkien had a heavy influence on Led Zeppelin, and, and you're one of the uh, the foremost experts on that band and their history. I think that a, a big kind of a, a clarion call for a lot of people to get in, into this was seeing Jimmy Page's, uh, I don't want to say obsession, but certainly his dabbling into the occult with purchasing, you know, being in, interested in Alistair Crowley, purchasing one of his homes, you know, mm-hmm. living on the shores of Loch Ness. He was a guy that put a lot of these occult ideas into the minds of teenage kids, whether, you know, he meant to do it or not. Right, yeah, I mean, he was certainly... He always sort of claimed later, like, he was just interested in alternative religions. He wasn't trying to convert anyone, but it did come out in his interviews. He he sort of helped promote that image as, as a persona that you would see of him, whatever. He was kind of mysterious throughout the 70s, but when you did see him, there he was dressed in a dragon suit or playing a guitar with two necks or... In the song remains the same when he turns to the camera and his eyes glow with that sort of otherworldly glowing light. I mean, he, and he admitted it, and I put it in the book, he knew it was a mystique and he knew that it mattered to the fans, so he played it up and he knew that it worked for him, for the group commercially. And other groups did the same thing, but on that said, he was sincere in his belief. He wasn't just doing it for a gimmick and going away and not thinking about it. He was committed to interest in Crowley and in uh, the work of Kenneth Anger, the filmmaker. Like he was, he wasn't a dabbler. So I think he was interested in it and serious about it, and it just sort of leached over into his public life, and and people made of it what they wanted to. They turned it into something that he didn't want to be identified with, but that was that was prompted by something real that he really was into. I mean, I mean, Zeppelin certainly embraced that, that idea and that, that mentality and that culture, you know, assigning symbols to themselves that had different occult meanings and, mm-hmm. and you know, certainly playing up with some of the album cover imagery and, and tarot, bringing tarot into it. And Absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I think uh, when you... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, his, his Zozo symbol, or what looks like, Z-O-S-O, I mean, that was from some medieval text or early Renaissance text, like the triple vocabulary, infernal. Like, he was certainly knowledgeable about all that esoteric stuff and uh, weird occult literature. So, you know, however subtly he was doing it or he was sort of doing it with a wink and a nudge, but there was no telling that when you get millions of fans reading this and sort of spinning their own tales from it, that it was going to take off and become something beyond what he, whatever he was intending to put there. I was going to say, as we were talking about the impactful medium, um, it, it, it in a lot of ways the music seems to, uh, at least over time, survive the occult more because, you know, it's really hard whether it was passed down from uncle to, to, to nephew or older brother to younger brother and then to, you know, through the, through the generations and now up to 2016, it's really hard to separate the mystique around certain bands um, from, from the music itself. So, you know, when I introduced uh, the Beatles, for example, to, to my nephew, you know, one of my links in was, oh, listen to all this really insane stuff that surrounds them. You know, when, when 
my when I hear my students listening to a, a sample of a Led Zeppelin song, I immediately want to show them the, uh, the the actual Led Zeppelin song that the sample comes from, and then it automatically becomes a discussion on, on on the occult or Blue Oyster Cult or Black Sabbath. When they touch upon these things, it's almost impossible, you know, now thirty years removed from it to. Um, to talk about those bands as just their music, like those mystiques have followed them a lot more, it would seem. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've, they've outlived with the bands themselves. There's no Led Zeppelin, but the mystique is still there. The legends are still there. The rumors are still there. And I think that that's an indication of how big the occult was, how big the market was. I mean, you have to remember this was the baby boom year, so there was a huge population that was listening to the music, buying the records, going to the concerts, talking about the music, reading the rock magazines. So there was a lot of chatter around what was really just working class musicians, people putting out music, trying to succeed, you know, working hard, touring, writing songs. But there was so much mystery around them. There was there was more more audience response than there was of the initial creators creating their work so it was inevitable that there was going to be all these sort of legends that grew up around them that had nothing to do with the musician's intention i mean the extreme example of that is the beatles and charles manson they had no intention of sending charles manson messages but here was this isolated guy ex-convict uh taking a lot of drugs living in with his hippie minions who was interpreting the Beatles records as this you know, personal message to him about starting a, an apocalyptic race war and he turned it into like, these brutal murders so that had nothing to do with what the Beatles were doing they were just making the music but here was one segment of these millions and millions of listeners who was taking it to be far beyond what the musicians were intending and, and getting back to the idea of those legends that surround the, the songs and the bands, when I was a kid, I would hear Stairway to Heaven start up, and, and I would turn the radio off, because I'd heard the rumors that it was written by the devil, and it terrified me. And then later on, I also heard that you know Hotel California was supposedly written by the devil, and I was like, well, I like that song. So you know maybe the devil's not such a bad songwriter, so then I would start <laughs> listening to Stairway to Heaven again. But you know those, those stories did persist, for sure. Even to me, a kid who was born in 78 and you know might not have picked up his first Led Zeppelin album until, you know, 88, 89. What about mm -hmm. Robert Johnson? Well, I didn't know about Robert Johnson then as a kid. I wish I did, but I didn't find out about him until later. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the sub-theme of the whole book is how much, how much of what became the occult or the occult phenomenon, how much of it was really generated by the audience rather than the producers or the musicians or the authors. The authors that were creating something that the public responded to and then sort of took it and ran with it and started inventing their own stories, their own legends that, that echoed off it. So it became, it, it really snowballed into something bigger than just a commercial product or a marketing ploy or, or a fad. It, it really affected our whole social life of how we think and how we believe beyond just what you would find in the record store at the movie theater or on TV. It, it really changed us right in our minds and in our faith. Well, you know, as with everything, and, and this this great era of the occult influencing pop culture and creating a lot of great classics, classic books, films, music, you know, but as with everything, there becomes kind of an oversaturation point, and, and you can point to something as saying, that's when it got a little bit too ridiculous. And would you say that perhaps Kiss might have been that point for, for this era of the occult? 
Yeah, well, KISS was certainly marketed to death, and they were, and even within the band itself, I think they started to recognize that it was just, it was overkill, there was too much of it, uh, the music underneath was not appealing enough to sort of justify all the hype around it, so that was certainly one thing. I think even by after 1980, when you had a lot of heavy metal groups come out, and they were just, everything was pentagrams and Satan and evil, after a while, people just started laying it on so thick. And then, of course, you had the slasher movies, and today you have The Walking Dead. Like, what worked for a while, what was done with a kind of subtle way when it, the Beatles or the Stones or Led Zeppelin did it, by the time you're into the 80s and 90s, you had people hitting you over the head with pentagrams. So they took a gimmick and really just drove it into the ground. And But Kiss was certainly leading that that charge because they had a gimmick that they really wore out pretty fast. And then they, they capitalized on that in the early 80s by switching their gimmick as to getting rid of the makeup, and now it's Kiss Unmasked. and you know Right, right. And that worked for a while, and then back in the 90s, and they put the makeup back on, and then they had to, and then after, that worked for a while too, and they had a big reunion, and then and they ended up kicking out Ace and Peter again. So on and on it goes. But these things last for a while, and then, as you say, they get saturated, and they have to turn in another direction. As we said before, you know, when legend becomes fact, print the legend, but is there an actual story, an actual legend of what KISS stands for? Because everybody comes at it with some different possible uh, acronyms. I got the it. one I come up with in the book, the one that I've heard uh, most of the time, is Knights in Satan's Service. I've heard it also as Kings in Satan's Service. Kids. I'm sure there's more than that, but the Knights in Satan's Service is kind of the coolest one. I mean, I like the sound of that, and they probably, it didn't hurt them publicity-wise, but... Uh, well, did they ever actually say that, or is that like you were talking about before, where people started assigning occult meanings to it because of the way it was written? I think it was what the audience did. I, I think it was, there was sort of a back and forth between the audience and the artist, and yeah, as they say in show business, there's no such thing as bad publicity, so with some of these things, I'm sure that people... They either didn't bother to deny it, even though they had nothing to do with it. They just let people roll with it. And maybe if it turned into a, a real problem for them, like legally or with lawsuits or anything like that, yeah, then they would come out and deny it. But when you're 25 years old, you're touring the country, you're trying to make another album, you're, you don't really know how long your own career is going to last. If, if this sort of rumor is out there, I think it would just it would have been a low priority for them to to debunk it. Same with uh, ACDC. Now I, I had heard people say that was Antichrist down with Christ or Antichrist devil's children or something like that. But again, they weren't. They were just too busy to to create this stuff, and they were too busy to come out and deny it too. Yeah, that's the problem. Is that you know if you're going to try to create you know assign something like that to it. You kind of need the band to carry their end of the bargain and, and live up to it. You know, at least with Kiss, you could say, you know, they come out, they have a guy dressed as a demon, and they're, you know, they're putting in all this stuff in the stage show, and they're, they're, um, you know, hoarding these legions of fans and, and giving them directives. You know, at least you can, you need the band to kind of play along in order to, to keep these legends going. ACDC, you know, so what? They called an album Highway to Hell, but other than that, there's no real signs that they were any kind of satanic band. No, I mean, there's, there's not much there there for people to grab onto, although they, they did put out Back in Black with Hell's Bells and everything, so they were they, they dabbled in it a little bit, and of course the audience loved that, So, but no, I don't think they ever tried to 
and tried to capitalize on it too much. I think they were just too busy and they weren't really thinking about what they were doing. But when you have an audience or a potential audience of millions and millions of high school kids, there's bound to be at least a few of them who take it and bring it to another place, whatever the intentions of the band. I mean, we, we're talking a lot about this being, you know, predominant in music and, and talking about some of the different ways that they've capitalized on this and I know that there were some bands that would intentionally put provocative imagery and would write provocative songs but it seems like for the most part though none of them are tied into any of the real life connections of what was going on at the time you know you had Anton LaVey you had you know some of these darker figures who were in culture at the time but there's no real direct correlations between any of these individuals and and the bands and the people making the movies they didn't no they didn't really link up um the people uh roland polanski who directed rosemary's baby said he's an atheist he doesn't believe in a physical satan as you saw in the movie um black sabbath were just guys out of birmingham england trying to get a rock band together they were curious about it and they they admitted it they were curious about the dark side or the evil but they never were converting anyone they weren't practicing it they weren't going home and having satanic rituals uh, so there was always that distance between, yeah, the people working in show business and then people like Anton LaVey and the people who were really hardcore trying to promote something. And, and there was never really any overlap between what they were doing, even though they were kind of reinforcing each other. Like the visibility of Black Sabbath would have reinforced the visibility of the Church of Satan for sure, but they never actually got together and pooled their resources and tried to sell it together. Uh, the closest that ever happened to that was that there was a backstage publicity photo of Black Sabbath with Linda Blair, the actress from The Exorcist. So they thought that would be a good shot, and there's a nice picture of Ozzy holding her. But, uh, I mean, they were never really trying to get together and sell the same thing. I got a question for Okay, sorry, when you go ahead. Yeah, I got a question for you. Getting uh, back to, like, Anton LaVey. Now, what about his dealings with Sammy Davis Jr., who actually played the devil in a lot of different things? They were right. close. Uh, yeah, Sammy Davis admitted in his autobiography that he had joined the Church of Satan. Um, he painted one of his fingernails as a satanic symbol. He was in it for the sex. It was a swingers club to him. Uh, and I think that a lot of the Church of Satan was really just about, it, it was a hedonistic club. Go and have a party, don't feel guilt, you know cheat on your wife, cheat on your husband. It was just no rules. That was the point of it. And for people who were just into having orgies or having a good time, that was the place to go. And I think it was that aspect of it that appealed to to uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Although he did admit, and I quoted in the book, that he went to one coven that took it a little too far. And that he didn't say what happened, but he just said it wasn't quite fun in games. And then I just went home and took off the, the fingernail. Uh, he wasn't part of the church anymore. He didn't. He didn't want to play along with that. But he was in it, as I think a lot of people were, just for the the notoriety of it or the the danger of it, the thrill of it. I don't think he was seriously trying to convert anyone or changing his own belief system. And Chris, you had a question. Oh, I was. I was wondering as I was as I was reading this because you do a really good job of. Uh, for every book that comes out or for every movie that comes out, um, you explore 
you know, the explosion of nonfiction work that comes out, which covers this, you know, because all of a sudden there was that great need to know more about these things. And I was wondering, just by the mere volume of what was going on, um, do you think for the average person who is consuming this, um, the blinds were blurred between something like the realism of the exorcist or Rosemary's baby or rumors about music and, and these nonfiction works they were getting, which were presented as if they were truth. Did that blur lines for the audience? Yeah, I I think people did blur the lines. I I think the, the stories of the exorcist and Rosemary's baby and the omen. And as I said, because they were set in the present day in the here and now among Mm -hmm. contemporary people, educated people, uh, not necessarily religious people. It just made it seem all the more plausible. So people, they were made almost as documentaries. And William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist, had previously worked as a documentary filmmaker. So they were made to look realistic, to look plausible. It wasn't set in an old castle with thunder and lightning. It was, it seemed to take place in, in situations that were recognizable from anyone's daily life. If you lived in a, an ordinary city in an ordinary country, um, so, of course, a lot of people would read read a novel with made-up characters and a made-up story, but then they would find out that there's allegedly some facts behind it, and then there would be a whole rush of books, like the Amityville Horror, which was purported to be factual. So it, it kind of crisscrossed back and forth between something that was explicitly a novel with made-up characters and stories to a similar story or a similar subject treated as fact. If you look at uh, the book Sybil, about a woman infested with uh, multiple personalities, now that seems like a non-fiction version of The Exorcist. It came out shortly after, but that was a best-selling book as well. So you can understand how the lines would be blurred between something that's acknowledged as fiction and something that's acknowledged as non-fiction, but the same person could read both and think they're you know, equally accurate expressions of the same phenomenon. You mentioned Sybil, and, and that's one of those things where the lines, you know, did get blurred a lot in the 70s as people were kind of glomming onto some of this stuff, and, and they didn't always worry about the facts being correct. And that happened with a lot of the, the you know, a lot of the dabblings that people had in, in putting imagery into the music and onto album covers and putting it into other works that they, they didn't really have a firm understanding of what it was they were dealing with. They were just grabbing things that they thought would be cool or, or get people's attention. And I think one of the things that we kind of forget about, we're looking at this now through the, the 2020 hindsight, and we're looking at this through the lens of where we are today and, and having all of this have come down the pipeline. But at the time, a lot of this stuff was being put out by people who weren't that much older than the kids that were becoming influenced by this. So a lot of these bands, a lot of these people who were out making these movies, they're young people who are just really kind of being reflective of the times, no different than the teenagers that were absorbing it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it was it was such a cultural phenomenon, and as I say, it was, it was happening across so many different media that I think a lot of people were just coming to the ideas for the first time. Even Stephen King was a pretty young writer at the time, and he was coming using ghosts and paranormal and telekinesis and psychokinesis that was happening in all his stories. So he was as curious as anyone, and he was just picking up all the other stuff that was out there in in the news and that was being relayed around him. So it was kind of natural that 
people just starting their careers in whatever medium it, it happened to be, whether music or film or publishing, were just going to pick up whatever the trends of the time were, and it was going to bounce around a lot. Uh, Roman Polanski was a young filmmaker. William Friedkin was just in his early 30s when he made The Exorcist. So, of course, these people were pretty attuned to the, the current trends of the time, and, and they made the most of it. And and we talked a little bit about uh, Richard Ramirez before, but you also had at the time, you know, these actual criminal elements. You know, you had Zodiac, you had Son of Sam. These things pop up, and, and that kind of, I would assume, would further solidify in people's minds that there is something going on. You know, there there becomes your real-life connection to the influence that this uh, this interest in the occult can have. Right. Well, when yeah, when it starts turning into real crime and real people are being hurt or killed, then there's no doubt that the occult is having a real impact. Now, whether people like Manson were serious students of the occult, that, that's sort of debatable. But uh, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, actually did admit he was influenced by Rosemary's Baby. He did listen to Black Sabbath. Uh, that's not to say that inspired him to go out and kill people, but he was certainly put in a psychological place where whatever urges he already had, he was going to he had some sort of background for. So definitely the the occult entertainment that was around at the time was certainly going to affect a few people who were already disturbed, and they were going to use it to to rationalize their own irrational actions, basically. So, yeah, it, it, did, it wasn't just something that you saw as entertainment. It was in the news, too. It was hard news, and it was really quite tragic news when you consider that people were being killed. Well, I mean, I know you said you didn't really believe that there's a, you know, a dark, sinister figure that's kind of manipulating all this or, or getting on, getting off on all this. But I, I start to wonder if it's not coincidence that you know it's it's Roman Polanski's wife who is killed by the Manson family. It's uh, you know John Lennon who's murdered outside the Dakota apartment building, which is featured in Rosemary's Baby. I mean, you start to see some of these connections, or are we just making these connections because we want to see them there? Well, yeah, I mean, there, it is. That's a pretty serious bunch of connections that are around the the Manson murders um, but and you know you could go on from there too there's a lot more going on that uh, were related to Manson and the Beatles and, and Lennon and everything I think it was all kind of a coincidence I think people were looking for it and I think you can find that around anything if you're looking for it but there's no doubt that the the Manson murders of 69 did have a lot of kind of creepiness around it that with hindsight did turn out to be you know that's what gives them their mystique is that it wasn't just some random nut killing people there was a, sort of a web of, of intersection of things that seemed to be linked up together yeah it seems like uh, you know it's like six degrees of kevin bacon you know if, if you want the connections to be there you can find them yeah and yeah and people looked for it and they certainly did find it now, coming out of this, I mean, toward the end of this era, what, what do you think, actually, because, you know, you cover from 1966 to 1980 in the book, which, by the way, is Here's to My Sweet Satan, uh, and as you're kind of getting through the, the latter part of the decade, what do you think it was that kind of shifted things away from this focus on the occult? Did it just become, you know, something that just petered out as people lost interest, or was there something else that kind of took over the public consciousness? 
Uh, I don't know if it really petered out. I think the reason I chose 1980 as the, the ending point of my book was that after 1980 was when you really started to get a, the, the social backlash against it. People were still interested in the occult, in, in music and movies. As the, as the entertainment, it was still pretty big. But for the first time, you started to have, to have people speaking out against it. That's when the moral majority came out in 1979. So there was really a growing the pendulum was starting to swing the other way. Throughout the 60s and the 70s, that was kind of the, the heyday of the counterculture. There was the hippie movement, the protest movement, the feminism, the the drug generation. Like there was Vietnam and everything. All that was sort of swinging one way. Then after 1980, it was starting to go back the other way. So even if the occult was still there in the entertainment industry, you now had a lot of people speaking out against it. And that was when the backward masking rumors started to come out. That's when uh, the satanic ritual abuse stories came out and the hysteria around alleged satanic killers and recovered memory and everything. So that was the expression of the backlash and all the people who had been sort of absorbing all this, these movies and these books and this music for since 1966 were now starting to react to it. And when you consider that uh, Hal Lindsey's uh, The Late Great Planet Earth was the best-selling book, best-selling non-fiction book of the entire decade of the 1970s, you can see that there was kind of a sleeping giant that was finally coming to, to, to rise and was really going to start to react against it. So that's why with the social conservatism that came out to the fore in that era, um, that was the occult no longer had free reign. It was still popular, but there was now an enemy that, and I think it led to the kind of culture wars that we're still experiencing in right. some ways, sort of left versus right, uh, secular versus religious, um, you know, experimental versus traditional. That's when they really started clashing after 1980. And I think musically speaking, you know, Tipper Gore probably killed a lot of this with, you know, her crusading against a lot of the stuff that was happening in music. But do you think that maybe MTV played a role in this as well? Because now when the bands are coming out, say, like a Motley Crue and, and, and cutting an album like Shout at the Devil, you're getting away from the mystique that bands like Zeppelin and Sabbath had because now you're seeing the band in front of you on TV every single afternoon when you come home from school and you're like, wait a minute, Vince Neil is just kind of an overweight guy in spandex with too much makeup on. There's really nothing to be afraid of here. Right. I, I, it certainly got watered down, but on the other hand, they were because they were so visible on, on MTV and because they were laying it on so thick, I think it, you were going to have more parents and authorities take notice of it. Now it wasn't just something that the kids were listening to in their basement and maybe talking about in the schoolyard after school. Now it was becoming so public and so visible, and the bands and, and the movies were just making it so explicit that they were singing about Satan or, or putting some sort of devil worship symbology in their music or in the movie posters. Now there was no mistaking it, and so whoever was opposed to it had a lot more to work with. Well, and I can tell you, too, as a, as a kid growing up watching MTV, you know what, to me, I waited for Headbangers Ball on Saturday night so I could see the really scary stuff, you know, the uh, the Iron Maidens and all that kind of stuff. That's that's what was still throwing a scare into me. Number of the Beast, yeah, 1982. <laughs> that was pretty serious stuff, yeah. And, uh, but, Saw that concert. <laughs> <laughs> but the best part about it is you kind of knew at the time, like if you spent a little bit of time paying attention, you kind of knew it was 
it was somewhat tongue in cheek with them. You know, you kind of just realized they were kind of playing with that imagery as well. So, even as a ten or a twelve year old, I, I got that because it was just that uh, that overt. So well, yeah, I think when when they made it, when they put Eddie on, like the guy with the the skull figure with the big hair running around on stage, yeah, like it was they were hitting you over the head with it, and that's one reason I was never a big Maiden fan, just because some of it was was so obvious and so overt that it didn't have the subtlety of a Zeppelin or a Blue Oyster called. But on the other hand, it because it was so obvious that there was a lot more for people to react to, whether positively or, in a lot of cases, negatively, and that gave a lot of fodder for Tipper Gore and those people. And... As we're coming to the final few moments of our discussion here tonight, uh, again, I want to remind everybody the title of the book is Here's to My Sweet Satan. You can get it pretty much wherever books are found. Get it on Amazon, and uh, and you can see George's blog linked up on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. But is there, I mean, obviously, you know, you spent the time investigating this era. Is there any possibility that you might go and take a look at something like the way the paranormal has become a, a niche pop culture thing here since uh, since about 2004, and the way that that's kind of permeated pop culture now? Well, yeah, that's definitely a big industry now. I guess the thing with pop culture today with the Internet and the 500-channel universe is that you can find anything you want out there, whether it's paranormal or normal or you know the most far-flung conspiracy theories. Just about everything is kind of a free-for-all. I think the the growth of the paranormal or the popularity of it, I think that can be traced to things like the Sasquatch and the Bermuda Triangle and Chariots of the Gods and the Mothman, all that stuff that came out in the 1970s, except that now that because of the Internet you can put up just about anything and, and someone will take it and run with it, someone will believe it, someone will put up more evidence about it. Um, I'd be interested in the paranormal less as whether or not it's really there, whether or not there's a scientific belief to it or or basis to it as why do people respond to it so much? Why do people right. want to believe in it rather than is it true or is it not true? I think it's more interesting to just talk about why is it so popular and where did it come from? Why, why do people want to believe in this sort of stuff? Sociological rather than physiological. All right, well, we are just about out of time, so uh, I do thank you, George Case, for joining us, and hopefully when you do explore that, if you do, you can come back and talk with us more. Hey, great to talk to you guys. whole bunch more that we still need to get to, but uh, we covered as much as we could. Thank you for a great night and a great discussion. Thanks a lot. Talk and, to you again. And thanks to Chris Balzano for joining us. Thanks to Matt and Matt uh, for keeping everything running, keep things going. We're out of time, though. I mean, it, it, it flew by. It literally flew right by. I cannot believe how quick that discussion went. Um, and there was so much more that we could have covered. So pick up the book, Here's to My Sweet Satan, How the Occult Haunted Music, Movies, and Pop Culture from 1966 to 1980. That does it for this week's show. We will be back with another show next Saturday night. We're going to be – got shows booked for months. So until then, stay spooktacular.